Church family, two weeks ago we had our Fall Fest and it was a tremendous event. We had over 2,000 people come and gather on our campus for this community-wide event. It was just a tremendous experience. Thank you so much to everybody who came and served, volunteered in so many different ways. It was a fantastic experience. So I really, really appreciate you doing that. There's one man who ran point on the whole event and that's Pastor Topper Reed. So if you get a chance to see Pastor Topper, make sure you put your arm around him and tell him thank you for all you've done this did a tremendous job with that event now it feels kind of weird coming back from last week because last week we had to cancel church because of the hurricane that was coming in and then it, it just felt weird not having a Sunday together and I had a couple of you say hey you need to make up for last lost time okay so if, I hope you brought your lunch because we got a lot to cover today okay we got two works of two weeks of material we're gonna try and gather it all together but I'm really really grateful so I got a question for you where do you find yourself on the spectrum of life. Now, Kenneth, what are you talking about? What I have found for believers is there's two camps, two extremes that we find ourselves falling into. One extreme is one in which of self-righteousness. We, we try to avoid the world. We, we, we hate the world. We don't want to be like the world. We, we don't want to get our hands dirty. It's almost a mentality of, I, mean, I, I want to retreat up into a, a monastery. I'm going to totally hide my family away from anything that's negative and, and, and sinful and evil from, from my family. We're going to go into retreat mode. The opposite that we find for some believers is total agreement and abdication to the world. You live like the world. You, there's no difference in the lifestyle between someone who does not know Jesus and someone who does. 
You're so locked up into the ways of the world that you're, there's no distinction like you're different from the world and you're not like Jesus at all. We see there's, there's two camps that people typically trend to go, tend to go towards. Jesus addresses these two, these two camps in Luke 15. When he's telling the story of the lost son, the younger brother is the one who lives in sinful lifestyle. He takes his inheritance from the father. He goes and lives a party life, enjoying the pleasures of the world. The other son, the older brother, is the one who was in this camp. He was self-righteous. He was pompous. He was arrogant. But he followed the rules. And the point of the parable in Luke 15 is that both are wrong. Neither reflect the way of the cross. You see, when we get to 1 Peter, we see Simon Peter begin to call God's people to live a different kind of life. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. As a church, we're going through a sermon series entitled Imperishable. We're walking through Simon Peter's first letter in the New Testament in which he's addressing believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And we've been going through this for the past six weeks. And so if, you're, if you've missed a week or if you want to get caught back up or even get a, a refresher course of verses 1 through 12, you can go to our website, gowestwood.org, and you can download all the sermons for free and you can get caught up on where we've been so far. And what's interesting here in the text is in the introduction of his letter, in the first 12 verses of chapter 1, Peter is giving solid doctrine as the scaffolding on which the rest of the letter is built. And he's telling these first century believers who they are and all that God has done for them in the gospel. And then in verse 13, Simon Peter builds upon these first 12 verses by saying this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Simon Peter, verse 13, uses the word therefore as a pivot point for the rest of his letter. You see, therefore is an important word that is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. It's a transition word that looks backward before it can go forward. The Apostle Paul uses this word in Romans chapter 4. He begins identifying faith as the means of how you and I can be made right with God, just like Abraham. But then he gets to chapter 5 and says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 7, Paul communicates this struggle, this inner turmoil that he has in which he says, I don't do the things that I should and the things that I shouldn't do. Those are the things I'm doing and I'm wrestling and struggling in the Christian life. Romans chapter 8 verse 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So in light of something in the past, this is how we are going to move forward. 
Well, here in chapter 1, verse 13, Peter is pointing to the first 12 verses and says, listen, you are elect exiles who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. You are those who have been born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Your faith is tested with the fire of various trials. Your salvation has been passed down through the prophets, through the apostles, celebrated by the angels. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Verse 13, therefore. Now he's going to get to the practical application. What does life look like for us as elect exiles? So practically, in light of what God has done for us in the gospel, what should our lives look like? So it begs the question, why does Peter spend so much time addressing who we are in Christ? And it's because of this. Who you are leads to what you do. Who you are leads to what you do. So for the first 12 verses, he's saying, listen, this is who you are. You belong to Jesus. Your identity is in Christ. See all that God has done for you in the gospel. And once you realize that, this is how we move forward. This is what obedience looks like in light of what Jesus has done for you. So now we see practically Simon Peter making a shift in his letter saying this is how we are now to go practically live out these gospel truths. That God is calling you to live a different kind of life. So this morning we're going to look at three phrases that reveal one overarching truth from the text that you and I can go and live out. So living a different kind of life, number one, it begins with biblical thinking. It begins with biblical thinking. Look at verse 13. Simon Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Peter begins his exhortation for holy living by addressing the battlefield of the mind. The mind is where godly living begins. When it comes to spiritual warfare, the mind is where the battle is won or lost. Weak-minded Christians who are not diligently thinking biblically fall into sin. Here in verse 13, Peter gives two mindsets that the believer is to maintain. The first is the ready-to-fight mindset. Verse 13, he says, preparing your minds for action. That word preparing quite literally means to gird up the loins. Back in the first century, people would wear these long flowing robes. And so if they wanted to run, they would have to pull up the robes and tie them around their waist with a belt so that they could move quickly. You see, even before a Roman soldier would go into battle, he would tie up his robe with a belt so he could be more effective in the battlefield. Quite literally, when his belt was fastened, he was saying, I am battle ready. I have girded up my robe. I'm ready to go to battle. Well, listen up, y'all. You are in a fight to the death over your faith. And Simon Peter's saying, listen, gird up your minds. Battle-ready mindset. You are in a spiritual battle right now, and he's saying prepare your minds. On almost a daily basis, when I get home from work, I've got about uh, 12, 13-year-olds that are playing basketball in my driveway. And it is incumbent upon me to disciple them in the ways of the Big Blue Nation. 
And so when I come home, I take out my wallet, my cell phone, my keys, I lay them down. I then start tying up my tennis shoes and I begin to disciple these young men on the way it should go. What am I doing? I'm putting away things that are in my way and I'm tightening my shoelaces and I'm getting battle ready. Simon Peter is saying, listen, get rid of anything that's keeping you from being battle ready and it's time to engage. Gird up the loins. Get battle ready. You see, this is what it looks like to live a holy life. It begins with your mind. You know, it's interesting. Moses led with this kind of urgency during Israel's final night when they were slaves to Pharaoh. As the people were eating the Passover meal, Moses told them to be prepared to leave at a, at a moment's notice. In Exodus chapter 12, he says, here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed, ready for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, you are to eat it in a hurry. You see, the night that the death angel would pass over the Israelite homes marked with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he's saying, listen, you need to eat this meal quickly with your, your loins girded up. You gotta be ready to go at a moment's notice because y'all are going, we're, we're getting out of here. It's a jailbreak. This opportunity to get out of Egypt. Well, that's the same type of urgency we see here with Simon Peter. It's that you gird up your mind, that you're ready for battle. You're ready to leave at a moment's notice. So you, you take off, you put off anything that hinders your thinking, and you put on a mindset that says, I am ready to go to battle. Don't miss this. Thinking biblically means fleeing from ungodly thinking and pursuing Holy thinking. Hear me today. You are in a fight to the death. And your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to eat it up. Therefore, gird up your mind. Get ready. Every day you put on the ready to fight mindset. But then Peter addresses a second type of mindset. It is a focused mindset. Verse 13. He says, being sober-minded. To be sober-minded is to think with clarity. It's a, it's a calmness. It's quite literally, quite literally to keep your wits about you. Now this is the opposite of someone who is drunk. When someone has had too much to drink, they don't think straight, they have poor judgment, they make bad decisions. Well, just as the stupor of drinking dulls your thinking, so being in love with this world will make you drowsy towards God. And here Peter is saying, this type of thinking, you're supposed to be sober-minded. You're supposed to be focused on the Lord. You see, thinking that thinks like the rest of the world will take you down. If you fill your head with pornographic images and watching TV shows and movies that do not honor the Lord, listening to music and podcasts with obscenities and vulgarities, filling your mind with jealousy and bitterness and covetous thoughts, they will lead your heart and ultimately your life in total opposition to the Lord. You see, your thoughts inform your heart. Your heart reveals itself through your life. Mind, heart, life. This is where it begins. Simon Peter says, get your mind ready. You're in a fight. 
And it begins right here. Romans 12, 2, this is why the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, what? Mind. Just as a farmer sows corn seed to reap corn, just as a farmer sows watermelon seed to reap watermelon, if you sow lust, anger, pride, envy into the soil of your mind, you will reap an ungodly life. However, if you sow truth and grace and love, if you plant the word of God into the soil of your mind, you will reap holiness. Thinking biblically. Do you want victory over sin? Drain the swamp of your mind with the word of God. This is your battle plan. Y'all, it's easy to drift into worldliness. It's easy to go with the flow of the world. It's hard to have a focused mindset. It takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes grit to persevere in this. This is why I think so many believers give up. Because it's a lot easier just to go with the flow. The world says this. So yeah, I'll just agree with that. That's what everybody else is saying. Because you don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. Well, the, the history that the world is talking about right now is far too brief. The world may be right for the next 20 years. It's going to be very wrong in the next 20 million. And here, when we think biblically, we begin thinking God's thoughts. This is why you think biblically. It's countercultural thinking. You view the world in light of the scriptures. And it's only through knowing God's word will you be able to discern truth from a lie, good from evil, right from wrong. If you don't know your Bible, you're going to lose. This is why thinking biblically is essential for holy living. So the way that you move forward is daily reading the Bible, memorizing the word, meditating on it day and night, even preaching the word to yourself, knowing the word. You see, a life worth living begins with biblical thinking, which, number two, leads to hope-filled waiting. Verse 13 Simon Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the heart of the passage. Peter's calling upon these believers who are suffering for the sake of the gospel to hope fully upon the coming grace when it is revealed with Jesus Christ. Thinking biblically leads to being filled with hope. And this is hope is an anticipation. It's a longing for, it's a looking forward to a future event that is coming, verse 13. The second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the day when Jesus was gonna come back. He's gonna rescue his church, y'all. There's coming a day in which Jesus is gonna come back. He's gonna rescue his bride. As Paul tells the first Thessalonian church, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise. Those who are still alive will be caught up with him in the air and we will go be with him forever. That is what we're looking forward to. So as these first century believers are suffering, as they're being persecuted for their faith in Christ, Peter is saying, listen, look forward. He's kind of like a watchman up in the crow's nest of a ship, out looking, surveying the horizon. And he says, listen, look, there's something coming in the future. 
Your relief is coming. You're going to go home. Your reward is promised. Do not give up. Persevere. And he's calling them to say, listen, you can have hope in the midst of your trial. You can have a hope-filled waiting as you wait for the return of Christ. Just as a fiancé is anticipating their wedding day. A couple, they're waiting, they're longing. When's the day coming? And then the day comes. Our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to rescue his bride. He's going to rescue his church. He's going to call forth the redeemed throughout the ages and will come and be with him forever. You see, a different kind of life begins with biblical thinking which leads to hope-filled waiting that results in, number three, holy living. Verse 14, Simon Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, thinking biblically and setting your hope fully on the grace that's coming, it produces a holy life. Notice what Peter calls us to, verse 14. He calls us obedient children. He's connecting our holy living to our status as his children. He's using familial language of who we are, and he connects it to our behavior, that indeed we are obedient children. A few weeks ago, one of my sons came up to me and said, Dad, how can I serve you? And my response was, huh? Man, it was a fleeting moment, but it was great. <laughs> but like, isn't that, like as parents, we love that. Like when our children actually obey, it's like, whoa, that was pretty great. And it hit me, that's exactly the posture that my heart should be towards my heavenly father. Father, what, how can I serve you today? Anything that I can do for you? You don't need me, but you love me. And you want to use my life. And so, I'm available to you. So here, Simon Peter is connecting holy living with as obedient children. Children who are saying, yes, Lord, whatever you want, I'm, I'm happy to follow and do what you say. But you see, this call of, of being obedient children to obey the Father, it must not lead us to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. You see, this word passions, verse 14, it means sexual lusts. Peter is telling them, listen, your former way of life of promiscuity, it's not who you are anymore. Sexual immorality does not define the follower of Jesus. That's your old way of life. That's not who you are anymore. So don't go back to that. He, he addresses this again in chapter 2 when he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We'll get there at some point, but... Isn't it interesting how he's connecting sexual immorality with damage to our soul? He goes on to say in 1 Peter 4, for there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. He's saying, listen, don't go back to that way of life. 
Don't go back to where the rest of the world is trending. You follow Jesus now. And so as these first century believers, they had left their old sinful ways. They're now following Jesus. Peter is saying, don't go back. But verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all all of your conduct. You see, just as the one who called us is holy, so too are we to pursue holiness in every facet of our lives. Remember, this is not God saying, hey, go be holy because I said so. No, 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 no. God says, be holy for I am holy. In Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah comes into the throne room of God And the text says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and they cried out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, God is describing his own character as holy, holy, holy. The original Hebrew, they didn't have exclamation marks. And so in order to emphasize something, they would say the word twice. Well, when God begins revealing his character, he's not just holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. This is exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. This is who he is. He is set apart from sin. He is holy and righteous in all of his ways. He is distinct and he is different. There is no one like him. He's perfect in all of his ways. He is set apart from sin. He is pure. He is clean. He is faultless. And he alone is holy. But just as God is set apart from sin, so too are you and I called to be distinct from, set apart from sin and the world around us. The world lobs the accusation of hypocrisy at believers when we do not live holy lives. May you and I live in such a way that an accusation could never take place. We're so committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are marked with holiness that there's no way anybody could say anything against us, but rather, chapter two, verse 12 of 1 Peter, they see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is calling believers to be holy in our conduct. And then he quotes, verse 16, Leviticus eleven forty four: You shall be holy, for I am holy. This Old Testament command to be holy is now being applied to those who are followers of Jesus. We are called upon by God to live a different kind of life. So what does that look like practically, Kenneth? What does holiness really look like in the world around us? Let me give you four ways. Four marks that you are growing in holiness are, number one, you hate your sin. You hate your sin. Now notice I didn't say you hate yourself. It's not what the scriptures lead us to. But you hate your sin. As a, as a believer, there's a growing hatred towards your own sin. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you realize how sinful you are. And again, this is what the Apostle Paul struggled with in Romans 7. I don't do what I should, and I do the things that I shouldn't. And there's this frustration with the flesh. Like, oh, why do I keep falling back in that way of life? Why do I keep committing the same sins I used to? When I was a new believer at the age of 18, I thought by the time I turned 30, I would have the New Testament memorized and I wouldn't sin anymore. Well, I'm not quite memorized the New Testament yet. 
And the closer I get to Jesus, the more I realize how sinful I am. You see, I don't commit those big sins out there that everybody considers, but what I have found is the closer my heart gets to Jesus, the more I realize how depraved my heart really is. You see, holiness is something that is blood-bought. It's something only Jesus can accomplish for us. His blood declares us holy because of faith in him, but his blood also motivates our holiness, going and seeking to live a godly life for his glory. You see, when you, you hate your sin, you're quicker to see sin in your own life before you see the sin in others' lives. You see, people who are growing in holiness, they're tremendously gracious towards other sinners because we know how far worse we would be apart from the grace of Jesus. It's like when you meet someone who is a, a worse sinner than you, you're just like, now I would be in the exact same spot. I'm gonna show tremendous grace, grace and mercy and love because apart from the grace of God, that's where I'm gonna be. What we find is, I mean, you look in your own heart and you realize, man, it was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. I'm the one who's guilty. And yet he responds with forgiveness and love and grace. So now, because I've received the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness, I'm now motivated to go live a godly life. But you see, number two, you not only hate your sin, but you daily repent of your sin. You're daily repenting. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily and follow me. Yes, re repentance begins the moment you believe the gospel. The moment you put your faith in Jesus was the moment you repented of your sin and you trusted in Christ. Great moment. But repentance does not stop there. Repentance is a daily habit for those who belong to Jesus. Because as you and I continue to sin until Jesus calls us home, we continually have a heart that's postured by saying, Lord, I want to I turn away from this sin and turn towards Jesus. And I thought I had victory, but Lord, here it is in front of me again. I want to turn, I'm, Lord Jesus, I'm coming back to you again, asking for mercy and grace. And you do it every day until Jesus calls you home. Number three, you are becoming more like Jesus. You're becoming more like Jesus. That's a mark that you're growing in holiness. Now, this takes time, y'all. I really wish that sanctification took place in a microwave. Press 30 seconds. Here we go. I made it. Here we are. I'm awesome. Right? No, that doesn't work that way. It takes time. This is why I love hanging out with senior adults who've been following Jesus for decades. We have so much to learn from them. Because it's day by day, week by week, month by month, year after year, being faithful to Jesus, growing in holiness. We have so much to learn from those who have gone before us. So here's my question. Are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? If not, why not? And whatever that why is, whatever that thing that's hindering you, this morning, it's time to bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, when we get to this day next year, I want to be far further along in my holiness than I am now. So Lord, I want to bring this thing that's a hindrance and I'm going to confess it, I'm going to bring it to you and I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to repent, I'm going to turn it away and I'm going to, Jesus, you're mine. I want to grow, I want to pursue hard after you. Parents, do you want to leave a legacy for your kids? Make it more about the spiritual than about the financial. 
Money is great, but it's temporary. But the godly life that you leave for your kids is legacy. Be holy. And your mission as a parent is the exact same mission as our church. It's to invest in your kids who will go impact their world for Jesus. That's the mission that God's called you to. So don't worry about leaving a nest egg for your child. Focus more on living a holy life. Display the gospel before their watching eyes so your kids and grandkids can just see what the gospel looks like so that when you take your last breath, they're not runting to the lawyer's office. They're praising God with gratitude of the life that you displayed before them. That is one of the best gifts that you get to give to your children at the funeral, by the way. I've done funerals for people who did not live a holy life and you can see it amongst the family. But those who did live a godly, holy life, there is sorrowful, joyful rejoicing, just this tension of, oh my goodness. But a gift that you give to your children and your grandchildren after you're dead and gone is that you have displayed what the gospel looks like and they know where you are. I've done funerals where we don't know where that person is because there was no fruit. What a gift you give to your children and grandchildren by saying, this is what holiness looks like. Fourth and finally, your joy and your love, they're ever increasing. Listen, if you're not joyful and if you're not loving, you're not growing in holiness. Being religious and mean, being pompous and an uptight religious prude, those are not fruits of the spirit. They reflect, reflect pride of self-righteousness. When you read the Gospels right now, I'm going through the Gospel of Luke in my quiet times, and I'm studying the life of Jesus, and I'm just seeing the crowds are attracted to him. They want to be around him. And one of the many reasons is because he's full of love and full of joy. People want to be around people like that. Being arrogant and self-righteous and religious, people don't want to be around you. You see, a mark that you're growing in holiness is you're becoming more joyful and more loving, more tender and more kind. This is the growth and the gospel that takes place. It's radically different than the two different extremes. So what about you? Where do you find yourself trending towards? Are you finding your heart more religious and uptight, self-righteous? Or are you like the younger brother? who's more worldly focused and trying to be liked by everybody around you, but no distinguishing marks that you follow Jesus. Well, the gospel calls us to a better way, a different way. It's the way of Jesus, not religious self-righteousness and not worldly licentiousness. It's the way of Christ. It's the way of the cross. And God is calling you and he's calling me to live a different kind of life.